This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the phone today from his home in Philadelphia is Professor Bryant Simon. He is a member of the faculty at Temple University, and he has written an interesting and, I must say, a troubling book. It's called The Hamlet Fire, A Tragic Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives. Bryant, welcome to the journal. It's so good to be here and to talk to you, Walter. Before we get into the book, our listeners always like to know a little bit about my guests. And since you did spend some time in South Carolina, about 25 or 30 years ago, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote my first book, um, A Fabric of Defeat, about the mill villages and the politics of the New Deal in South Carolina. And I was fortunate enough during that period to have a fellowship with the Institute for Southern Studies. And actually, there's a link to this book. At the time, this is probably 1989, something like that. Um, I was commuting often from Raleigh, where I lived, to Columbia. And I would drive down um, Route 1, which meant I went through Hamlet. And I actually visited Hamlet before the fire. Um, I had learned that Hamlet was the birthplace in 1926 of John Coltrane and also of Tom Wicker, the longtime New York Times journalist. And I, I was just sort of fascinated by what a, a small town that had given birth to, to me, two really seminal figures in the 20th century. So I remember on one of my trips um, – to Columbia from Raleigh, driving through Hamlet and checking out the railroad depot. So there is a kind of link between um, my initial experience in Columbia and writing this book many years later. All right. And you did your graduate work at Chapel Hill, right? Yep. Um, and, and one last question personally. Where, where are you from? I'm from um, a small town in southern New Jersey, Vineland, New Jersey, uh, about an hour from Philadelphia. Okay. All right. Before we get into talking about the fire in 1991, let's talk a little bit about the town of Hamlet because it has an interesting story and in some ways is typical of the rise and the decline of small southern towns. Yeah, the the most important building in Hamlet, and it still is, is a really beautiful gabled Victorian um, railroad depot, and and that building signifies why Hamlet was there, what accounted for its growth, and also, as you said, its demise. It sets the context for the fire in 1991, and and so for much of kind of the you know from the 1920s to 1960. Hamlet was a railroad town, and what that really meant was it was a place of good jobs where somebody you know, could go to high school or maybe not even go to high school and get a job on the railroad and keep that job for 30 years. And with the wages from that job, which really were fixed on a national scale, um, they could buy a house, they could take a vacation. Um, they could send their kids to college if that's what they wanted to do. If it was a man in charge of the family, he could work well. His wife um, stayed at home and they could create that really sort of powerful image of a working class family that was getting ahead in America. And there was one line I read while I was doing research for the book that really kind of stuck out for me where someone bragged in the 1960s that Hamlet had the most backyard swimming pools of any town in North Carolina. And, and, and what they were really saying, right, was that this was a kind of place where somebody could get ahead and get ahead enough that they could afford to have leisure in their home itself. And so that was really the, the backdrop of the town and really the economic engine in the town and everything in the town sort of revolved around the railroad. and and. People got jobs serving the railroad. They got jobs serving railway workers. And, and you could see that in the downtown, which was kind of a nice little downtown anchored by an opera that famous stars came through in its heyday. But again, as you hinted by the late 
1970s into the 1980s, the transformation both of transportation in the South and of the American economy kind of doomed Hamlet and set up the, the, the conditions that would make it sort of vulnerable and that vulnerability kind of would get played out in the fire itself. All right. And what was the rail line that came through Hamlet? Well, it was by the time that um, the fire happened, it was CSX. Um, it, it evolved over time, right, that there were uh, a number of, of, of short lines and long lines that came through Hamlet. But, but really, the dominant player was um, CSX eventually. The old seaboard line? Yeah, the old seaboard line. Yeah, because if, if you were going north, uh, say from Atlanta or Columbia, uh, you usually went through Hamlet. Yeah. And, and, and so Hamlet, it, its main sort of source of money and income was, was freight and it serviced cars, it fixed cars and over time kind of took on more jobs. But yeah, the passenger trains kind of going north and south would stop there. And that was another source of business, right? In those days, people would get off the train and maybe spend the evening in Hamlet. And that gave rise to a, a little hotel industry, an entertainment industry, a restaurant industry that serviced those people coming into town. And they would often get off the train, kind of wash up and dress back up again for their strolls around town, giving the kind of ambiance of affluence and, and, and some sort of prosperity to Hamlet. Well, and that's why you mentioned that the, the railroad station was not only significant, but it was it was beautiful. It was it, yeah, it still is beautiful. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't your little run of the mill small waiting room. I mean, it for a town its size, it was it was very upscale. Absolutely, and and it's sort of rounded and gabled and and distinct. I mean, it, it's a building that that sticks with you. And I mean, again, it, it both kind of in physical terms, but really even more in kind of symbolic terms, anchored the town and spoke to its ambitions and, as we've said before, its prosperity. All right. Well, when I said that this was a story of rural towns in the South, obviously, one thing that sets Hamlet apart is the high wages. But it's a one-industry town, just like many other small towns in the Carolinas and Georgia, uh, even going on over into Alabama, whether it was the mill um, or what have you. It was a one-industry town. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sort of conformed to that con that one-industry form of small towns. I think it also speaks, as you hinted at, the the scale of industrialization in the South. It was dispersed. But industrial work, you know, by the 20th century wasn't unfamiliar to Southerners, both in its cities and in its small towns. But I do think one thing maybe that distinguishes Hamlet from some other places in the South was it was a union town. The railroad workers were members of unions and they were AFL craft unions, right? So, you know, if you were an engineer, you belonged to the engineers union in many ways, well, it resembled small town, southern city, southern communities and rural towns. It also had an interesting parallel to places like Birmingham and even Detroit. And that was that it was a one industry town that was a union town that, again, provided the people who worked there with high wages that they then leveraged to economic uplift. So it has kind of two parallels going on at the same time, I think. The industry that we're talking about is the railroad and the servicing, the shops, the machine shops, and and what have you. But as American transportation changed after World War II, Hamlet begins a decline. Yeah, absolutely. And as, you know, southern states like South Carolina and North Carolina go on a kind of massive road building campaign, the railroad is essentially replaced by trucking and to a lesser extent to, to using airplanes. And, and Hamlet at that point becomes a place like many southern towns that will be forgotten that's not on the interstate. Those two things together, right, the kind of decline of the railroad as a freight industry, the decline of the railroad as a way that people kind of 
traveled in, in lieu of cars and airplanes, and also it not getting sighted uh, along a highway leads to um, a pretty steady decline in railroad employment. And as we've talked about, when the railroad's going to fall apart it was, as the key industry in the town, the town itself begins to deteriorate. And, you know, one way to see this is on that main street that we talked about, where it had been robust and prosperous. Stores begin to close down. The hotel, the little hotel begins to close down. The opera house closes down and eventually abandoned empty buildings and storefronts that have been shuttered mark the downtown as much as existing businesses themselves. And that leads to town, like many small southern towns, in search of revenues, in search of, of some way to build a tax base to pay for the things that it needs that sort of sets up the, the, the chain of events that will lead to the tragic fire in September of 1991 in Hamlet. Well, I'd like to add one more thing about, about the town and Hamlet. Like many southern towns, the railroad track was a dividing line as well as an industrial source. Yeah, absolutely. The railroad line went through Hamlet and divided Hamlet between black and white. And those divisions would persist long past the 1950s and 1960s and even the gains of the civil rights movement. It was a town that's geography was marked by the railroad track and it was a town whose geography was marked by race. Okay, Bryant, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal and I'm talking with Bryant Simon about his new book, The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Okay, well, let's get on to Hamlet searching for an industry. The mayor of the town, who's by the is, is an interesting character by the way <laughs> she's back on the city council actually oh okay but they're they're searching for any kind of industry and and as southern states all of them were looking for industry they were looking not to bring necessarily high skilled jobs they were looking for anybody who would have employment provide employment yeah. Yeah, in a sense, um, North Carolina and Mississippi in some ways pioneers this, but but pretty quickly, North Carolina becomes really good at it, beginning in the 1940s and 1950s, but really accelerating by the 1970s. The state government goes out in search of employers, and they really measure their success not necessarily by wages, but by the number of jobs they create. And in many ways, I would argue that North Carolina becomes pioneering, right? Pioneering of both a national and a global model in which the government um, moves from protecting its citizens and protecting wages and health and safety conditions to becoming essentially a recruiter of industry. And this kind of trickles down um, from the state level, which North Carolina had a really active kind of industrial recruitment um, regime, to the county level. So counties themselves get involved in this recruitment and they send out brochures. And in those brochures, they, they send out to prospective employers. They tout the perfect weather conditions, also suggesting that, that companies, particularly in the north, won't need to pay for so much electricity, but even the electrical rates are cheaper. But they also promise them a low wage and non-unionized workforce. And so both at the state level and at the local level, the government is looking for employers. At the same time, in Pennsylvania, there's a small chicken processing plant called Imperial Foods run by this guy, Emmett Rowe. And um, He's in a really competitive industry. Chicken by the kind of 70s and 80s has become competitive. And he's looking for a more profitable venue. Also, he's looking to get closer to a supply of broiler chickens and chicken parts. And he sees an ad for a shuttered ice cream plant in Hamlet. And he does, we can presume, what any person in his situation would do. He does a little research. And he quickly finds out that the county, and the city have high rates of unemployment. To him, that's good news. High rates of unemployment means that he'll have a ready supply of workers who will work for less than he's used to paying in Pennsylvania. He does, again, what any employer would do. He looks at rates of unionization. 
by the 1970s, 1980s, Hamlet and the areas around it no longer are really union strongholds. The rates of unionization are really low. All of this is good news to him. And so these two agendas, right, meet at that plant. The, the city and the state wanted an employer. They wanted somebody who would employ people in the community and, and would help support its tax base. Imperial Foods wanted a place where it could operate cheaper and be more competitive. And, and they come together in 1980, 81, 82. That's when Emmett Rowe buys this plant. And all these moves are very deliberate, I would argue. All right. Now, he's buying an old ice cream plant. How do yeah. you turn that into a chicken processing plant? <laughs> well, that's a great question, Walter. But, and then the answer, I think, hints at some of the, the, the larger part of the story. No one really knows because he did all the improvements on those plants without ever applying for a license without ever clearing it by the city, without ever doing the kind of waste treatment survey that you'd want to do. And, and I think the real important answer to your question is that, again, we don't know because the city decided that they would leave him alone. And that's exactly what Emmett Rowe wanted. As much as he wanted to produce chicken, he wanted to be hidden he wanted silence. He wanted to be able to operate his plant the way he wanted. So part of the promise of being in a place like Hamlet was no oversight. And he, he got the message about that almost immediately. And so, you know, people would tell stories of they'd hear like uh, the, the factory was up on a little rise um, not far from the, from the train depot, you know, and trucks would be groaning up the hill carrying mostly used equipment, you know, a used fryer. He bought a used fryer that will come, become important to the story. And um, he installed that without, you know, an electrical inspection, without a fire inspection. Just did what he wanted. He moved walls, added small outhouses and buildings, again, within walking distance of City Hall, within walking distance of the fire station, Nobody asked him what he was doing. And all of this to him was a signal, uh, the signal he wanted, that he could run that plant the way he wanted to without any oversight. North Carolina, at least on paper, had inspections, right? They were supposed to do industrial inspections. What about OSHA? Wasn't OSHA in existence at that time? OSHA is in existence at that time. I mean, OSHA is a complicated law, as, as I'm sure you know, but, but maybe it's worth reminding your listeners that OSHA, the Occupational Health and Safety Act, um, was passed in the early 1970s by the Nixon administration. And it was a, an attempt by Richard Nixon to try and peel off white working class voters from the Democratic coalition. But it was never well funded. And it also had a caveat to it that states could develop their own OSHA systems if they wanted to, and they didn't have to be part of the federal system. Places like North Carolina and other southern states put in place their own OSHA systems. And they were supposed to essentially kind of follow federal guidelines, but the federal government never cared much about it, didn't really sort of you know, hold states accountable by 1980, when Ronald Reagan comes into office, he actually campaigned against OSHA. He's not really interested in kind of making OSHA work. So by the time of the fire, interestingly enough, North Carolina is the most industrial state in the country per capita. And I think that's a, something worth kind of underscoring. It is the most industrial state in the country oh, per oh, capita. Oh, 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 okay, Brian, I just got to stop you there. That yeah. That's... I want you to go back and say that again and tell us how North Carolina, on a per capita basis, was the most industrialized state in the United States. Yeah. It, by the time of the fire in 1990, North Carolina was the most industrialized state per capita in the country. And, you know, that surprised me when I learned that. I think it surprises most people when they hear that. And in part, it, it becomes industrialized for the very reason that companies like Imperial Foods come to North Carolina. Companies come to the state in order to become more profitable. And they realize that profitability lies not in the industrial core, 
not in big cities, not even along the kind of freeways and highways of North Carolina, but in outlying areas where they can sort of capitalize on cheap labor. And so really what explains the kind of industrial rise of North Carolina is like a second wave or maybe a third wave of industrialization taking place during that period where outside capital and sometimes inside capital is coming into small towns and opening relatively modest factories in which they rely on small kind of pockets of labor right around them. Okay, Bryant, what you were describing the industrial scene in North Carolina, it was repeated here in South Carolina, at least in yeah. the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, not the big textile mill surge, which we had two centuries ago <laughs> uh, in the 1890s, right. but these small companies moving into the state from the Midwest and the Northeast, primarily. Exactly. You know, all kinds of these sm small towns, right, have one factory, two factories that are relatively small and become important kind of players in local economies. But we were also talking about OSHA. And, and what, what was happening by the 1990s is, is North Carolina becomes more industrial. It does not build a regulatory system to match its industrial growth. And you can see this in, in, in OSHA itself. By the time the fire broke out at the Imperial Food Products um, plant in Hamlet, North Carolina, North Carolina had about 180,000 workplaces across the state. But there were no more than 40 industrial inspectors who worked for OSHA. And that meant if they just, – just think about this. If they inspected one factory a day, every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year – they don't take a vacation in this calculation. It would take them between 65 and 73 years to inspect every plant in the state. Well, what did that mean? That meant effectively OSHA was not in operation in North Carolina. That meant at the factory in Hamlet that Emmett Rowe could raise the speed on the production line without any consequence. That mean, meant he could bring in new equipment without any consequence. That meant he could lock the doors in the back of the plant from the outside, knowing that they would probably never be inspected. And so the lack of oversight meant that you know he could run his plant the way he wanted. And I think there's an, another really related point. Walter, it also meant that if he actually abided by, say, the, the national health and safety regulations, he would be at a competitive disadvantage. His competitors weren't doing it. So even if he wanted to, he was disincentivized from protecting the health and safety of his workers. He, he didn't do. Um, and in fact, he went you know, the extra mile in some ways of not doing them. He was stealing water from the local government. He didn't build, you know, accessible sewage lines. And all of that was in a kind of mad rush to the bottom. And, and, and again, he is in one of the, he's in a really hyper competitive industry. Okay. All right. So we've got the plant in Hamlet operational. Um, right. Let's talk about the workforce and uh, what do they do? So the, the workforce um, is largely women, largely black women, many of them um, single moms. They make up about 60 to 70 percent of the total workforce at the plant, but about 80 percent, 75, 80 percent of the workforce on the first shift, the fire is going to happen in the morning. Um, so they, they're, they're by far the largest group who works there. And what they do and what this plant was, it was called a further processing plant. They don't cut up chickens. They don't eviscerate them. They, they take already cut up chickens, really chicken breasts. And the big thing they did was turn them into um, – chicken tenders that they sold to small, mid-sized chains throughout the South to Shoney's, Long John Silver, and Red Lobster. They did make some chicken nuggets, but that was largely made out of um, leftover parts that they had. 
that they would grind up and they sold um, to local school districts. So that was the two main sources of, um, of, of what they produced. Again, this is the late 1980s, early 1990s. So that's, that's what the plant is producing. You mentioned the first shift. How many shifts did it work in a day? Were there two shifts or did it work around the it, clock? It, by the time of the fire, it had two shifts. It had um, the, a day shift and an evening shift. The day shift, again, more moms worked on that shift. The evening shift tend skewed a little bit younger, a little rowdier. But again, the fire happens on the, on the day shift. So if you're in that plant, you're getting the chicken breasts, and are you operating something that's cutting it up? Are you cutting it up by hand? How is, how is the, a, Yeah, there's a couple jobs, and um, all of them are dangerous and uncomfortable. So the, the first job you might have, if you'd have a knife, you'd work in the trim room. The company would have already purchased frozen chicken breasts, and so your job would be to cut those chicken breasts into strips to use as tenders um, and maybe to scrape globs of fat off of them. The problem with that is you're standing up all day. You obviously are working with a knife, but also your hands are, are all day long reaching into a box or, or a vat of frozen chicken parts so that you're you need to wear two or three sets of gloves just to keep your hands from kind of freezing up. Often that means bending or reaching. So that would be the first thing you would do. Then you might work um, in a part of the plant near the fryer. They had a gigantic fryer um, at the center of the plant. That would be uncommonly hot if you were how, working in there. When you say gigantic, how big are we talking? Um. I think it was like 40 gallons of oil it held. And it, it, it was so big that it had a rickety conveyor belt we can get to later that basically carried the parts up into the top of it and then ran them through the fryer automatically. So it was, you know, you couldn't reach the top of it as a, you know, normally sized person. Just to get, get a sense of the size, it, it took somewhere in the neighborhood of three hours to get it hot enough, to get the oil hot enough to cook the chicken tenders in. And then you might work on the other side of the fryer where no matter what time of year was uncommonly cold because what would happen is the tenders would come out of the fryer and they would be um, flash frozen. And you would have to pick them up off the line and load them into boxes that would go into a freezer. And that part, you were cold all day. The other part, you were hot all day, no matter what time of year. And in most parts of the plant, no matter where you worked, you stood in, in puddles of water, the water that would come off the chicken, that would um, melt off of the tenders. And um, so many people, you know, their feet would freeze over the course of the day. And, and for some people, right, their feet would freeze and their arms would be hot. It was not a particularly a place you know, that was easy to work at. But I think it's worth pointing out that um, people still value these jobs. For p the women um, and men who survived the fire that I talked to, many of them valued the work and they valued even more the wages. The plan at the time of the fire paid five fifty an hour and that was a dollar above minimum wage. And that was just about the best job around. So, well, the work was hard. It really broke down people's bodies. It left people with carpal tunnel syndrome and other repetitive motion disorders. They were susceptible to kind of burns from the oil. They went back every day because there were, was very, there were few alternatives of work. And, and one of the stories I, I thought was really interesting was um, several of the people who died in the plant were from Bennettsville, South Carolina. And I, I I thought about that for a while. I mean, yeah, they commuted to this job. And that says something about, you know, what's available in the area, right? And 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 they all said the same thing. They were working in a maybe a place closer to Bennettsville, but the Hamlet plant paid an, a dollar more an hour. And they would, you know, share gas with somebody in the town and they would drive every morning. They would get in their car. I think this this helps us understand the the 
the labor market in the area that people drove a half hour to stand in pools of water um, because that was the best job available. And, and we're grateful to have that job in many cases. That doesn't mean they didn't understand that it was hard work. That doesn't mean they didn't understand sometimes the abuse they suffered from almost all um, white foremen and supervisors, but they valued the chance to earn a living. Okay. This is a former ice cream plant. Is it one big open area or is it subdivided into different rooms? Because the architecture of the plant is going to pay a, play a role in the fire. Yeah, it, it, it is. a. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to confuse the rows who own the plant. Um, it's a father-son team or their supervisors with like hyper-modernists. The plant is kind of um, a maze. Uh, it it had been retrofitted, as you said, as an ice cream plant to, to produce these chicken tenders. And, um, you know, there's a, a, a trim area here. There's a um, boxing area there. It's, it's, it's not particularly well laid out. It, it is, uh, as several um, the people who worked there described it to me, it was a maze. And it just was not, I mean, as you were pointing out, an easy place to navigate. And I think underscoring the danger inherent in, in that is that the owners of the plant never once held a fire drill. So it wasn't an easy place to, to navigate. It wasn't huge. Um, it, on, a, on a given shift, there were you know, 80, 90, 100 people, but it also wasn't easily kind of transparent the way you moved about it. All right. Clearly, North Carolina was supposed to have some kind of code with regard to fire ex exits. I mean, um, you go back. Yeah. A you go back a century earlier, and you talk about the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York City, where people all of a sudden began to say, "We need to have emergency exits." But did this plant have emergency exits? Um, no. And um, what makes this even more tragic? And, and appalling in many ways is the planet had three fires before this tragic fire. Um, none of them resulted in, in substantial injuries, but, but one did result in a, in a fairly large amount of property damage to the plant. And as I mentioned earlier, the fire department um, is a stone's throw from the plant. This is, by the time of the fire, the largest private employer in the city Yet, um, the fire department never inspected the plant. And in fact, on the day of the tragic fire in, in September of 1991, the fire department came and they didn't even know where the water source was. They hadn't done a pre-fire assessment of the plant. And, and I think this speaks to, to, to the larger issue here of the lack of regulation in North Carolina. And one other thing I'd add, Walter, um, right before the fire happened, the state of North Carolina actually put in place a law that said that um, you had to have a fire marshal in a town and those fire marshals needed to um, investigate public buildings and factories in that town. But you could get out of that um, requirement if you said the town didn't have enough money. And so Hamlet was one of those places that essentially sort of cried poor. And I'm, not, I'm not suggesting they're, that, that they're misrepresenting themselves, but that's not really regulation, is it? If there's a law in place and you don't have to enforce it at a local level. And so literally, again, you know, months before the fire, this law goes on the books and, and, and nothing changed in, in, in Hamlet. Okay, Bryant, we need to pause again to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with Bryant Simon about his book, The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. And I think you've pretty well set the background on the cheap government part. So let's, let's get into the tragedy itself, and it's, it really is... A tragedy. Yeah. It's, let's just set the scene the morning of the fire. It's September 3rd, 1991. It's the day after Labor Day, that Tuesday morning. Workers 
um, had had a long weekend. But at the same time, well, they were home for an extra day, having picnics with their family, resting their weary bodies. There was some trouble at the plant. The fryer that was, again, the center of the production at the plant itself, that where the chicken tenders were fried, wasn't working really well. The conveyor belt that brought the pieces of chicken into the fryer was, was, was acting up again. And so that morning, the maintenance people had gotten there early and, and they needed to fix a part. Um, and they were, were trying to fix a hydraulic line. And they actually didn't have the right parts. But they weren't going to shut down the plan or shut down the fryer just because they didn't have the right parts. Um, they knew that the owners wouldn't let them do that because that was money lost. And again, the, the, the company, Imperial, was really in a precarious financial situation in 1991 and was not in a position to lose any money on anything. And so they begin to fix this part um, and they do it with the wrong part. They attach it. Um, and did they shut it down before they started working? They on did it? not. I was just, just going to say they, they also, while they were working with this hydraulic fluid, which was flammable, they did not turn off the fryer. And so the flames under the fryer are going and they actually um, are not shielded as they needed to be by code. They are kind of open. And Basically, what happens is they attach this hydraulic line with the wrong part, you know, but, you know, they tried to do the best job they could, I think. And um, when they turn the hydraulic line back on, it immediately becomes uncoupled and it begins to sort of almost spasmically, you know, because there's all this pressure going, spew flammable fluid all over the place. And what happens is some of that flammable fluid ignites it it hits the burners under the fryer and it ignites and creates this explosion that explosion knocks out the electricity in the plant but it also creates a thick layer of black smoke so workers begin to to you know race to try and get out of the plant and um they they talk about this they can't even see what's in front of them the plant itself is a mess. They they knock into other machines. They knock into black bags of flour. They knock into each other, and um, you know, the harrowing screams from everywhere. But they logically they they can't get to the front of the building. That's been cut off by the fire, and they move to the back of the building. And what they find at the back of the building are locked exits. And when they move to the break room where they think there's a way out there too, they find locked exits. And some of the workers make it to one of the locked exits and they think, well, maybe I can survive the flames if I hide into, in a cooler, in a place where they, they store the, the, the um, frozen chicken tenders. What they didn't know was, in, in, a, in a kind of brutal irony, is that this was one of the doors that actually didn't lock and carbon monoxide seeped into this cooler and 12 workers died there. The other 13 workers die in various, um, a couple of the maintenance people die right near the explosion. But most of them die, virtually all of them die of carbon monoxide poisoning, not of flames in various parts of the, of the building, often other than those 12 near exits where they can't get out. All right, how many workers were in the building at the time of the fire and how many perished? Um, there's about somewhere between um, 70 and 85 workers are in the plan at the time. The ones who are in the front, who are in the tr trim room and have jobs in the front, the fryer is like almost in the middle of the plant. They're able to go out the front door. Those on the other side of that can only go out the back and it's the back door exits that are locked. So um, about 50 people survive, many of them, you know, with all kinds of ailments and injuries, but, but again, 25 of them die. And perhaps, you know, one of the more tragic stories is, um, as I said, it was the day after Labor Day. And there's a, many of your listeners will 
probably remember uh, the Lance Company, which was a kind of inexpensive vending company that made you know the kinds of things you'd find in vending machines. That company operated a vending machine in the plant that workers could buy stuff from um, in in the break room. Again, the Lance delivery man usually came on a Monday, but because of Labor Day, he came that that um, Tuesday. And he was the one person who didn't work in the plant who died in the fire. And his story is is really tragic. Um, you know, as the fire department from various communities arrives in Hamlet, they begin to pull the bodies out of the plant, and um, they they've at that point opened up the doors, and they're in the this back loading dock where which had been locked during the fire, but they're bringing bodies out and and this Lance delivery man is brought out of the plant and his body is lowered down into the arms of a volunteer fireman who happens to be his son who didn't know that his dad was there. And, um, that's how he learns about his father's death. He, he would eventually lead his own sort of tragic life that would lead to him killing somebody, um, several years later. So we have, we have the fire and what is the reaction in the town, in the state, nationally? Um, the, the fire generates, you know, attention, outrage. Um, and, I, and I should add some really just tremendously compassionate and insightful journalism. The Charlotte Observer, the Raleigh News and Observer, and to a lesser extent, the state um, in Columbia, just pour resources into covering the fire and really revealing the underlying causes of it, what happened to people. And I, w- I would just say, I mean, this was really helpful to me in my research, but also it was kind of something I lamented as I was doing the research. I don't know that those papers would have the resources to do that now. I, I was kind of well aware of that while I was rereading those articles. And it becomes national news. It's on the front page of every major paper. It's in front page of international news. And they tell this tragic story, right, of um, a group of poor, mostly women who are are killed in a fire because the employers locked the exits. Um, it's appalling, right? It's 1991. It's 80 years after the Triangle Wayshirt Factory fire in New York even though it has eerie echoes of it. And there is, a, there is a call for reform, for change. Jesse Jackson comes to town a number of times. He builds Hamlin into his national speeches about the need for protections for workers, for better wages, for a more compassionate society, really. In North Carolina, there are, are demands for more oversight, the labor commissioner of the state is ousted in the next election cycle. But for all of that energy, Walter, I think in the end, the changes are pretty small. And, and, and I think that's a, a kind of maybe a, a, more, a bigger tragedy, um, I suggest in the book. Yeah, the state adds a, a few industrial inspectors yeah, there's a shoring up of the fire safety laws. But I think as we saw during the pandemic, the people who make our food are often vulnerable. Um, they're often asked to work in, they, they themselves are often poor and at the margins of society. And they're often asked to make a choice between their safety and taking care of their families. And, and that fundamental kind of vulnerability that put those people in that plant that day, that had them driving from Bennettsville despite them knowing that the plant wasn't safe, um, but knowing they didn't have much choice. I don't think that's changed very much. And, And I think that calculation that we make as a society, um, hasn't really changed. I just, just give you one really quick example. There was a, a congressman, from North Carolina. He didn't represent the the Hamlet district, but um, he was from the state. And in the wake of the fire, he talked both in Congress and the press about the tragedy of the fire and how this couldn't happen again. Within two years, he was on the floor of, of, of the House of Representatives um, lambasting 
OSHA and its what he called Gestapo tactics, without any sense of irony, without any sense of the disconnect between these two statements, and he wasn't held accountable. The political discourse hadn't changed, the, the kind of ideas of the state hadn't changed, and he would be reelected even after that. You have a chapter that deals with the, the victims themselves, and I, I must say that it's pretty gut-wrenching. You titled the, the chapter Bodies because the archivist for the state of North Carolina tucked away the death certificates for the victims. It's in the state archives. And could you just talk about what you found by going through a death certificate? Because I didn't realize that you would have all of this incredible detail. Yeah, I mean, I can even read part of that if that would be... I think, th I think so. So here's how I describe this. An archivist for the state of North Carolina tucked the death certificates for the victims of the Imperial Food Products fire away in an ordinary-looking building in Raleigh, not far from the state house and the governor's mansions. The records are contained in a single gray folder. The only place to sit and go through them is a chunky, heavy metal desk in a windowless room. The names of the dead are listed one per page. Each report contains the information you'd expect to find on a death certificate. Each lists the last known address. Each notes their age, marital status, how much schooling they had, and the time, place, and cause of death. Though filled with dispassionate clinical language and terminology, these records possess an eerie intimacy. They include a glossy headshot of the victim and a generic sketch pinpointing the spot of every scrape pockmark, bruise, burn, and soot stain found on each body. The examiners discovered a noted needle marks running up and down both arms of one of the dead. He tried to hide his habit from his co-workers with bandages. The medical examiners listed in detail what victims wore on their bodies at the time of their deaths. Brenda Gale Kelly had on a blue shirt, white jeans, and white shoes. She had a bow in her hair. Michael Allen Morrison had on rubber boots and a black t-shirt with the words, I survived Hugo, a hurricane that blew through the Carolinas in 1989, killing dozens of people and causing billions of dollars written across the front. And at the time of the fire, Donald Bruce Rich had on blue denim overalls and a dark t-shirt proclaiming his allegiance to the Holy Trinity of wine, women, and overtime. You know, you often say, well, let, let the victim speak. And describing these working class men and women, you know, from the fact that Brenda Gail Kelly had a bow in her hair and the I Survived Hugo or the Wine Women in Overtime T-shirt. And then they talk about going through the pockets of, of one woman whose son actually had run into the building to try to find and save his mother and both died. Yeah. They found bifocals, nail clippers, scissors, a small ton of Tylenol, a coin purse with three $5 bills, three $1 bills, 91 cents in change, a ring with seven keys, and a few sticks of chewing gum. They're noting all of this in the record. I mean, it, it I don't know, I just found this, this chapter, um, had to take a deep breath after I finished it. Yeah, it was a it was hard to write. Um, as I also noted, I mean, it's, a, it's a dynamic of the story that we haven't yet talked about, but maybe is is maybe a segue if if we want to go there is um, that a social bargain had been constructed in North Carolina that sort of suggested that the way to move forward economically was to provide as many jobs as possible, and it you know through a cheap government and, and to have them make it through the consumption of cheap goods. But I was trying to also suggest um, how that cheapness hit its real costs. And so one of those costs, right, is in the fire itself, but chicken tenders were really cheap, but they were also really devastating to people's bodies. The work at the plant maybe paid a little higher than everywhere else, but it, it, it wore up people's bodies. And I, I was also suggesting that what is historically important about this moment is that things might look cheap, but they actually cost a lot. 
Well, I, I must say, when you described the inside of the plant and the slime on the floor, I thought, ah, the jungle, Upton Sinclair. Brian, I hate to tell you this, but Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. We need to, to sign off, but before we do, any last words you have for our listeners? No, I, I, but I have a word for you, Walter. I am really glad to have a chance to talk to you and, and, and maybe and to even thank you publicly for investing some faith in me so many years ago. Um, I really appreciate it, and so it's, it's, it's a real honor to get to to speak with you again in this context. I'm just sorry we're not in the same room. Well, I am too, but that's part of the new world in which we're living <laughs> It is in the pandemic. So, Brian Simon, professor of history at Temple University, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar. And normally I say, I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Rather than say enjoyed, I hope perhaps you learned something from this. The story of the rise and decline of Hamlet, North Carolina, and the evolution of the one industry town is a story that's been repeated across South Carolina and the American South for more than a century. But the painful story of the tragedy of the Hamlet fire gives us an insight into the industrialization of food production in the United States. Producers fighting costs and what those costs might be when it comes to the American workforce. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.